0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au. Well, hey, Anchor Church, Matt here, Lead Pastor at Anchor City, and we are so glad that you have decided to join us today for Church Online, whether you are tuning in in the morning from Anchor City or in the afternoon from Anchor Southwest, uh, we are so glad that you are here. We hope that you're blessed by being with us. We want to say that we miss you guys so much. really miss being in person, miss seeing people's faces and smiles and hugging people and saying hi to people on Sundays. Cannot wait to see you all in person again. Well, hey, this morning we are continuing our series in the book of Exodus. I'm going to pray for us, so would you join me as we pray together? Father God, we thank you that you are a God who steps into our slavery, into our brokenness, into our idolatry, and you rescue us. God, we pray this morning as we look at what is perhaps a really familiar passage to many of us. We ask that you'd open our eyes to see afresh what you would have to say to us this morning and help us to see uh, that you're a God who is committed to forming us and shaping us into the story of the God who redeems. I pray for every person who is struggling this morning across this uh, live stream, and I ask that you would meet us and reveal your sufficiency, your grace, and your power. And I ask it in Jesus' strong name, and all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Well, here we are in Exodus chapter 12, uh, as Hope has just read for us. Um, And the events of chapter 12 are really the culmination of a, a long process of plagues, of pandemics, as we've called them, that have been happening throughout the book of Exodus, really from chapter 7 all the way up to the end of chapter 12. So Alnado has given me six chapters to preach in 22 minutes. Thank you, bro. But here we go. Really, um, what we've seen here is plague after plague after plague. We've seen the plague of blood, the plague of uh, frogs, the plague of, uh, plague of gnats, of flies, of livestock, of boils. Personally, I think that would be my least favorite of all of them. The plague of hail, locusts. And darkness. Now, why, why are all these plagues? What is happening here in these stories of these judgments that God is bringing on the nation of Egypt? Well, really, as Brad reminded us last week, what is being set up here is an epic battle between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the gods of Egypt. And in particular, Pharaoh, who was viewed as a god. In Egyptian worship, the Nile River was considered a god. Uh, the god was called Hapi, not H-A-P-P-Y, but H-A-P-I, and uh, the river Nile was um, considered the source of life in Egyptian worship, and God turns the Nile River into a river of blood and it literally becomes a source of death. Every living creature in the Nile dies. Uh, frogs in Egyptian worship were to be considered the giver of the breath of life. And God sends a plague literally to fill their houses with frogs and suffocate the Egyptians. Plague after plague. God is demonstrating here that he alone is God, that Pharaoh is not God, that the Egyptian gods and the Egyptian sorcerers and magicians are weak. They are not powerful. And we know this from the very start of this setup all the way back in uh, Exodus chapter 7. We see that scene where God instructs Moses to throw down his staff in front of Pharaoh, and his staff becomes a snake. And then all of the sorcerers of Egypt respond by throwing their staffs down, and by their dark magic, that sounds very Harry Potterish, but by their magic, their staffs also become snakes. And yet, Moses' snake gobbles up all the others. This is a contest, an epic battle between Yahweh, the God of Israel, the true and living God, and the false gods of Egypt. Moses tells, uh, sorry, God tells Moses that that is his purpose. Right the way at the start of uh, Exodus chapter 7, he says this, "'Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt.'" And bring the Israelites out of it. And so as we arrive uh, at the 10th plague, there's already been nine rounds to this fight that have gone on. Nine plagues that have already come. Nine pandemics that have already swept through the land. And the 10th and final plague, we have to admit, is the worst of them all. This is a plague of death, not just of fish and of livestock and of insects. But this plague results in the death of human life. It's the plague of the firstborn. Every firstborn son in the land will die. Now, we're not told explicitly, but we can probably uh, guess here that this is God's direct punishment to Pharaoh for killing Israel's firstborn sons and boys by throwing them, drowning them in the River Nile, as well as just the accumulation of centuries of slavery uh, and harsh treatment of God's own firstborn, his his son Israel. And so Moses will deliver with great detailed instructions about the provision of God's mercy for his people in the midst of this tenth plague. He says that every household is to gather a year-old lamb, a lamb without defect, a lamb without deformity, that to keep that lamb in their house for four days, and on the evening of the last day of their festival they are to slaughter that lamb. And they had to paint the door frames of their house with the blood of the lamb, both the sides of the doors, the top of the door, potentially even blood spilt on the floor of the doorway. After they've done that, they're to roast the lamb, eat it without breaking any of its bones. they had to burn any of the leftovers. And Moses says that this meal is to be eaten in haste. That is, they're, they're not like sitting down to this long um, enjoyable meal here. This is like Macca's drive through right? They're eating this meal on the run. Their cloaks are tucked into their belts. Their staff is in their hand. They're to wear their sandals. They're to eat this meal quickly. Why? Well, because God is going to pass through the land that evening and Israel will be set free. So, what it says in verse 12. On that same night, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt And strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment to all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt." Now, it's interesting to note here that God makes no distinction in this plague between Egypt and Israel. In the past, with some of the plagues, He made a distinction. So, for example, the plague of livestock, all of Egypt's livestock was killed, and yet all of Israel's livestock was spared. But in this plague, God makes no distinction. Instead, He makes a provision. He makes a provision for mercy, for Passover to occur, that when Blood is painted on the doorframe of any house. God will pass over that house. The destroyer will pass over that house. And the firstborn within that house or the firstborns within that house will be spared. You see here in the Passover, the lamb is a substitute for the life of the firstborn. The lamb stands in their place. The blood is a protection against the destroyer. But more than that, it's also a sign for Israel. You see, the blood was a sign for them. It was the the thing that they stepped out in obedient faith and worship and trusted the words of God through Moses. Moses brought God's instruction to the elders and the leaders of Israel and said, this is what God says. And in Israel's fickle moments of faith and doubt, in this moment, in this instance, they choose to act in faith as a community. They obey God. And they do what God has said. This is their moment of faith. It's a lesson of trust for them to trust God. And yet we know how long that will last for them as as literally they get to the other side of the Red Sea and they begin to grumble against God and against Moses. You know, it's interesting as you read chapter 12 here, um, what's clear is that this chapter has been written in liturgical form. And by that I mean it's written... To shape the worship of future generations. If you go back to chapter 11, you get the dialogue of Moses telling Pharaoh what's going to happen, of God telling Moses how it's going to play out. But here, the author records these events so that future generations may know how to worship God. These instructions here in chapter 12 are to be a lasting ordinance of remembrance God's people are to commemorate, are to celebrate what happened in the Passover, in the Exodus, every year. It says that in chapter 12, verse 14. And it's actually not just a single day. It's an eight-day festival. It begins with a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. The people were to eat nothing from their houses other than bread cooked without yeast. It didn't rise. It was a flat bread. And they were to purge their homes of all products that in, included yeast in them. And traditionally, the Israelites would sweep the yeast out of their doors as a sign and symbol of their purging. And this, this seven-day festival would culminate in the celebration of the Passover meal. These are the instructions that Moses gives the people in verse 24. It says this, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, Observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, What does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, This is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. You know, this moment, in fact, is so significant that it marks a new beginning for the people, for the nation of Israel. That, right at the start of this chapter, chapter 12, verse 2, God says, this is to be the first month of your year. It's a new start for you, Israel. The entire Hebrew calendar will revolve around this event. It's kind of like Israel's Independence Day, the day that they celebrate their freedom and their birth as an independent, free nation, no longer bound by the tyranny and slavery of Pharaoh in Egypt. And as many nations would celebrate historic moments of their past, this is how Israel was to preserve God's story, God's redemption. This is not some nationalistic event celebrating Israel, the powerful nation. No, this is a celebration of redemption. It's a celebration of God's salvation. It's a celebration of his power and his reign and rule over all creation, that he alone is Yahweh, God. Now, this is important because Israel, like all of us, are prone to spiritual amnesia, uh, prone to wonder, the, the, the famous hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. So this festival, this, this commemoration served to help Israel remember, to remember what God had done. But more than just remembrance, this festival is actually a reenactment of what took place, It's Israel, it's the future generations of Israel entering into the story. It's the future generations experiencing what it was like for God's people to be set free from slavery on that very first Passover night. The taste of the bitter herbs that they would eat was a reminder of the bitter slavery that Israel experienced and the harsh treatment that they experienced under Pharaoh. The unleavened bread was a reminder that they needed to purge the idolatry of Israel and worship God as he required. And the sacrifice of the lamb reminded them of the cost of redemption, that God had set them free. You know, Hebrew worship is embodied worship. And uh, it's very different from first century Greek culture worship. Um, Much of Greek thinking has shaped Western thought. And Greek thinking says that we think our way into new acting. We think our way into new behaving. And there's some truth to that. But the Hebrew worldview was very different. Hebrew culture says we act our way into new thinking. Now, to be fair, that's probably a bit of a false dichotomy between the two because the Hebrew worldview didn't just act their way into thinking. They acted and thought their way into new behaviours. This process of Moses giving Israel instructions to commemorate and celebrate and remember the Passover is a way of them entering into and experiencing the story of the Passover, the defining moment of Israel's story and the very center of the the actions of God that shape their identity. It's, It's allowing them to experience that for themselves. This is not just remembering as in I'm mentally recalling a a past event. Like I'm mentally recalling the fact that in 2008, I was married. I'm I'm thinking about that. Now, this is more than just recollection. This is reenactment. This is Israel entering into the events, experiencing them, and bringing those events from the past to bear on their present moment. Now, if you're anything like me, perhaps you've grown up in a church context where um, dry rote liturgy was a part of your upbringing. Uh, And it seemed at least to me, and I don't want to project, um, you know, people's motives upon, you know, what was happening for them, but it seemed to me that it was at many times devoid of heart and passion. And it's, it's taken me a bit of a journey to come to realize and appreciate the importance and power of habit and experience on our formation. Sometimes in our efforts to swing the pendulum so far, we just focus all on the, the spiritual. But God's the worship that God desires is, is an embodied worship. We are not just brains on a stick. We are shaped by our emotions and by our habits. And to that end, during this lockdown period, we wanted to encourage you, for those of you who would like to read something other than your Instagram read, to be reading. One of the books we've encouraged you to read is Enjoying God by Tim Chester. The other one is a book called The Common Rule by Justin Early. And he unpacks really what it means to be a people who are formed by the power of habit. And I would really encourage you, he has a number of practices and habits that you can embed in your life to help you love God and to love others. But it's interesting here to notice that this Feast of unleavened bread that the Israelites are to commemorate and to remember um, is is not, it's not really mentioned why they're to do this in the book of Exodus. But Paul, as he reflects back on these events, gives us some interesting insight. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul says that the, the metaphor of yeast is a metaphor for sin, it's a metaphor for pollution. Uh, for the pollution of idolatry and sin that infects and shapes our lives. And so this metaphor of yeast here, this unleavened bread that God is requiring Israel to eat for seven days and to purge their houses is a reminder to them of an important truth. You see, Exodus is not just about God getting Israel out of Egypt, but it's also about getting Egypt out of Israel. You see, they had been there for 400 years. They'd been steeped and schooled in Hebrew culture. And they'd been formed and shaped. In fact, they had also even worshipped Israel, uh, Egypt's gods. And so this purging of the yeast is a reminder to Israel that God requires pure worship of him. And it's about getting Egypt out of Israel. This is a counter formation. And so, by repeating and reenacting and remembering this Passover meal and the festival of unleavened bread, Israel is to walk in God's story. And, and they are to respond in renewed worship and obedience, just like their forefathers did that very first Passover. You know, as followers of Jesus, we are a people who are called into remembrance and reenactment. But we don't look back to the Exodus, we don't look back to the original Passover, we look back to the cross, we look back to Calvary, where Jesus was crucified. And as we read the New Testament accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you cannot help but hear echoes of the Exodus everywhere. John the Baptist, who's Jesus' cousin, says when Jesus comes to be baptized, he says, look, this is the Lamb of God, excuse me, who takes away the sins of the world. The very timing of Jesus' death and the the last supper meal that he shares with his disciples in the upper room, they coincide with the timing of the Passover festival as it is occurring in Jerusalem at the time. And that is not a coincidence. It's not by accident. That is a very clear marker. To say what is happening here is a, a new exodus, a new Passover lamb. Even the description of the New Testament authors to say that at his crucifixion, Jesus' bones weren't broken, tell us that Jesus is the New Testament lamb of God. He is the new Passover lamb, the substitute who stands in our place. His blood is the blood of the new covenant, the expiation that covers over our sin. And the cross is the new exodus, our freedom from slavery to sin. And it is God's redemption of his people, calling for himself a people to worship him. And the Lord's Supper is our new Passover meal, the remembrance and reenactment of the redemption of God. You know, when Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room, the night before he was crucified, that the Passover Eve. He told the disciples to eat the meal in what? In remembrance of me. Not just simply mentally recalling the events of the cross, but remembering and reenacting those events to draw them into our present moment, that we would live in that story, that the reality of the cross would be the thing that defines our identity and shapes the way that we view the world and the way that we live our lives that our lives are shaped by the story of God. And as a means of grace God meets us there with grace in the Lord's Supper as we experience an embodied celebration of grace of what God has done in redeeming us. It's a reminder to us that our redemption is both bloody and costly. It required Jesus to shed his own blood. It's a reminder for us that Jesus purchased us to be his own, and that means that we are valuable and precious and wanted by God. It's a reminder to us that we enjoy deep fellowship with one another, that we just simply cannot embody in a real, tangible way on this medium. And it's a reminder to us that we are set free from the slavery that once bound us. If you're watching this this morning and you don't consider yourself a believer, a follower of Jesus, I want to say to you that this offer of forgiveness, of redemption is open to you. And in the same way that the people of Israel had to trust the promises of God, that he said, if you paint your door, I will pass over this house. We are called to trust that if we place our trust in Jesus, that God promises he will forgive us. If that's you, if you have never placed your trust in Jesus, then today is a perfect day to do that. We would love to reach out and connect with you. And the best way that you can do that is to click the button in the chat that says, I give my life to Jesus. Fill in the form and one of our team would love to get in touch with you. If you're a believer, I want to say this to you. We, we're in a season where it is so easy to be formed by the habits that we fall into in lockdown. I don't know what your habits and routines are like at the moment. Mine tend to be staying up late at night, checking out on Instagram, waking up early, reading the news and checking the New South Wales health website. It's so easy to be shaped and formed by the daily news and the daily case numbers and the daily number of Zooms that you have to endure and the lack of connection that we have. And then you get to the end of the day and you look at everyone raging and ranting on Facebook and you think, what is happening in this world? We are a people who are called to remember. And so I hope you've had time to prepare your elements for a celebration, a, a, a tangible reenactment this morning of the body and blood of Jesus with the symbols of bread and wine. You see, on the night before Jesus died, gathered with his disciples in, a, in an upper room, he took the elements of bread and wine. And he said to his disciples, these elements are symbols. He said to the disciples, taking bread, and I invite you to take your bread now. He took it and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. He took the grape juice or the, the wine, whatever your preference is, He says to his disciples, this is the blood of the the covenant, my blood of new covenant. And he says, as you eat this meal, as you eat this bread and drink this wine, do it in remembrance of me. Do it as a reminder that my body and my blood was broken. And so I invite you to take the bread and eat it in remembrance that Christ's body was broken for you. And take the cup and drink it in remembrance that Christ's blood, the blood of the new covenant, was shed for your forgiveness and your redemption. Let me pray for us, church. Father, we thank you for the gift of a tangible embodied experience and reminder of the death of Jesus. This morning, we thank you that you have reached out and rescued us from our slavery to sin. We thank you that you have paid the price, the precious blood of Jesus. We thank you that we are set free. And God, we long to live in that freedom and purge our lives of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we pray that you would sanctify us, make us your holy people. We worship you, we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said... Amen. Amen. Bless you, church. Look forward to seeing you next week.